This episode is sponsored by The International Educator. Many of you know part of my professional background is both in career development and education, which means I get a number of educators asking me how they can launch their careers abroad. If that's you, you need The International Educator, which connects English-speaking teachers with opportunities at international schools around the world. Not only do you find out about vacancies, but you get much-needed information on topics as varied as housing options, tax-free salaries, and professional development. And here's the thing. All subjects and grade levels are needed. For a limited time only, Thai is offering discounts on memberships for Global Chatter listeners. So visit ThaiOnline.com and use the promo code GLOBALCHATTER to save on your membership today. To call Lori Tharps a storyteller is a bit of an understatement. She's a journalist and author whose work lands at the intersection of race and popular culture, and her bio backs that claim up. Lori, who was an associate professor of journalism at Temple University, has written for the New York Times, the Washington Post, Vibe, Essence, Glamour, and Entertainment Weekly. She is the author of several acclaimed books that deal with race, culture, and identity, including Hair Story, Untangling the Roots of Black Hair in America, Kinky Gaspacho, Life, Love, and Spain, and the novel Substitute Me. And if that's not enough, she's the host of not one, but two podcasts, My American Melting Pot, that focuses on conversations at the intersection of race and real life, and the aptly titled my Bloody Hell, a show that focuses on perimenopause. With that background, you can imagine we cover a lot of ground because if there's anything Lori knows how to do, it's how to capture a story. In this episode, she discusses her personal observations on culture, Blackness, and the messaging she received growing up. She shares the intentional lessons on identity she passed on to her multicultural children, as well as voices the uncomfortable conversations that have to happen within interracial marriages. Lori also discusses why moving to Spain during a pandemic was the right thing to do. Race and identity is a powerful thread in much of Lori's work and her reflections. And what a rabbit hole we go down in this episode of The Global Chatter. Awesome. So if you've listened to the introduction, you already know who my guest is. And I am actually kind of geeked out because I'm pretty sure when I was looking at Black expat books and Black cross-cultural books, one of her books was actually on our list. She doesn't know this. Um, on the on the Pinterest page that has yet to be updated, but her book is still still there. And uh you know, I oh, I love having communicators and writers and, and journalists on here because it is such a different vibe. And so, Lori, I'm going to say good morning, knowing good well that you are in Europe and it's not morning. <laughs> Thank you. I'll take it. It's fine. <laughs> good to be here. I'm actually very excited to be here on the other side, participating instead of listening because I listen to all of your episodes. Y'all hear that? 
people listen to this show. So I'm just saying, if you have friends, they need to listen to my show because I have awesome people like Lori on here. And and so I, I want to get started. And this question, I start with everybody because we got to give context to our story. So uh, where are you in the world right now? I am in Malaga, Spain. I moved here in, at the end um this early summer of July of 2021. Oh my gosh. So I love it. You are kind of a, I don't want to say newbie, but you are a bit of a newbie expat. And then, and then you're like a COVID expat now <laughs> in the sense that you, not that you had COVID and not that you left because of COVID, but you moved during COVID, which I think it's extra ballsy. Any of y'all who, cause I've had several people do this who are like, yeah, let me go ahead and do this international move in the middle of a once in a generation <laughs> yes wow yes we did that we did that <laughs> and I, I i will not say like and i would do it again um but i'm very glad we did it i have no regrets <laughs> yeah no and, and we'll get into that story and kind of your experiences but i was reading as i was prepping for this that you actually were if, correct me if i'm wrong you were born and raised in milwaukee that is correct absolutely oh. okay <laughs> I've been to Milwaukee exactly once, by the way, and it was on a day I was not intending on going to Milwaukee, but I had a great time. Don't wanna, your, your face is like, why was I there? Because I'm crazy. And I was in Chicago and the Chicago area. And I said to a friend, hey, let's go to downtown Chicago. And as we were going, we saw signs in Milwaukee. And I said, let's go to Milwaukee instead, because I'm never in the Midwest. Your face is like this big. And it was a great summer day. And everybody was out by the water and we had a great meal. And so that that's that's my glimpse of Milwaukee. But for you raising there or being raised there, tell me a little bit about your childhood out there. Sure. And I have to say that summers in Milwaukee definitely uh, are much better than our sub-zero heavily snowy winters. Um, and in fact, summers are so appreciated because, you know, the winters are so, so harsh. But um Growing up in Milwaukee was actually quite picturesque in a lot of ways, in the sense that um, most people don't think of Milwaukee as great places to live or anything. Mm -hmm. I mean, it doesn't come up as like ideal city, but mm -hmm. we are on the lake on Lake Michigan. And I thought that was the beach. I mean, I still consider it the beach. Like we had a huge beach. My husband, who is from Spain, laughed at me when I said beach and lake, because to him, beach is only ocean. But as far as I was concerned, we had a beautiful lake, you know, the beach, um, every kind of activity that a kid would want to do, you know, your gymnastics, your dance class, your, I mean, you could do anything, summer camp, all the things, um, neighborhood block parties, all that kind of thing. It's, it seemed like an, I pretty idyllic childhood. And it, it was like that for me until I was like, probably like 10 or 11 you know, I, my parents, my mom was a nurse. My dad was an accountant. We had, my mom is one of 10 siblings. And so I had a very large black family, you know, every birthday, Thanksgiving, Christmas, like we didn't have birthday parties. We invited our friends, like the family came over and the family coming over was like 40 people. So I had so many cousins. I used to joke that like, I don't even, in fact, I still don't know all my cousins. Like um, so I had this really kind of seemingly idyllic childhood, but by the time I was like in my early teens, I would say, you know, kind of the beginning of high school, it started to dawn on me that I was the only black person anywhere that I was, mm. you know, I went to private school 
Um, we lived in mostly white neighborhoods because Milwaukee is a very segregated city. And so if you're kind of a striving middle-class person, you're going to go to the suburby areas. And I didn't live in a suburb, like a very, uh, like, um, we lived in like the first suburb outside of the city. So sidewalks, trees, you know, bus stops, you know, that kind of thing. It wasn't like, you know, deer and, you know, grass fields or anything like that. So anyway, the point is that by the time I hit my early teens, I was very much aware. I was made aware in a lot of ways um, of how white my environment was. And I did know, it wasn't like I didn't notice it and it didn't come up when I was younger, but, you know, I just wasn't aware enough of, you know, how to identify these feelings of maybe awkwardness or discomfort. Mm-hmm. And again, o- overwhelmingly, I felt I had a very positive experience. I had lots of friends. Again, I had this big family that was so supportive and again, always around. Mm-hmm. So, but by the time I hit my early teens, I was really beginning to chafe at the whiteness around me. I was really beginning to see the, we would call them microaggressions today. We didn't have that word. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, that word didn't exist. It was just like, you know, why am I always asked to do the Martin Luther King? I have a dream speech on Martin Luther King Day at my high school. You know, why am I only given the role of the maids? And I wanted to be an actress. You know, I was determined that I was going to be an actress. And like, I was in all the school plays and, and, I think like by the time I hit my sophomore year, we had a new uh, theater director and she always wanted to give me the the role of the sassy maid, you know, or mm-hmm. the sassy, you know, singer. Yeah. I can't sing. So like the fact that she wanted to give me these singing and dancing roles and I'd be like, actually, I want the lead dramatic role, you know, but all of these things, you know, start coming into play where I'm realizing again, just the, the frustration of being black in in a such a white environment. And so um, I was very excited to leave Wisconsin by the time, like college was going to be my big escape plan. And I just wanted to get away from um, Wisconsin. And again, I don't, I I don't want to paint my childhood as bad because it wasn't, you know, there was way more positive than negative. But by the time I was 18, I was so desperate to see some, to find my people, Like, like really that was it. And I, Apropos for this um, this podcast, when I was 17, I was an exchange student in Morocco. Wow. And I that experience blew my mind and really showed me that this, this white experience that I was having, this quote unquote American experience that I had had was so limited and was just a tiny, tiny version of what living could be like. So I was in um, a host family living in Casablanca. Mm -hmm. There were 10 other American students on this program. Each student was with a different family. And eight out of the 10 of us lived in the same neighborhood, which was a very Western part of Casablanca. All the houses were like kind of beautiful. I mean, literally, you would have thought you were in Los Angeles. Like they were just like green lawns, nice, you know, big houses. But myself and my other friend, literally were on the wrong side of the tracks like we were literally far far away from everybody else and you know like there were little tra- literal train tracks that you crossed over and you were in the not so nice part of the city right that's where i lived and like my family wonderful people but the front of their house was a gas station and i was like 
remember suburban Wisconsin, like pretty sheltered. And I was like, what did I get myself into when I saw my host family's house? But they were like just really unique people. They lived in an apartment building, but they owned the entire building. Mm. But the front of the house, it wasn't a house. It was just a building with a gas station in front of it. And, and everything about my life there, you know, I didn't understand what was going on most of the time because my family, unlike the other host families that all spoke French, my family only spoke Arabic. I mean, the kids spoke French because they speak French in the schools, but because the mother only spoke Arabic, in the household language was Arabic, Moroccan Arabic. And only one, oh, I had eight sisters and three brothers <laughs> ranging from age like three to 22. And um, nobody spoke English except for one sister. And my one sister who spoke English gave me a Moroccan dictionary on the day I got there. It said, memorize this. Nobody's going to speak English to you. <laughs> So here's here's where I'm I'm totally vibing with your story and I it's true. I think that you said something that happens to a lot of people is that we're we're in our own bubble and then we go somewhere and we see how different things can be, right? And I think especially for people who are black and I, you know, I'll include Brown in there and say that to go to a country where everyone is black or brown, <laughs> it's, it's, it's weird. Like, you know, it exists. It's not like you didn't know this exists, right? You have basic geography or whatever, but it is, it's, it's, it's almost indescribable. I think for a lot of folks, especially when you've been in an area where you're right, like predominantly white environment, predominantly always been the one who, who stuck out and maybe, yeah, of course you stick out in different countries, but it's not because of your skin color. Do you know? <laughs> like yeah, it was that was the thing that was so exciting to me because ironically of the 10 students that were on this trip with me, three of us were black. Um, okay. And one of them was actually the daughter of a celebrity and um so it's the three of us black girls, the other ones everybody else were white girls and one one white boy. And um it was interesting because all of them, except for the, the three of the three of us black girls, you know, if we would wear jalaba, you know, and walk around, like we wouldn't stick out. Whereas the white kids, you know, they had to deal with that feeling of being the ones that would get stuck out. Yeah. You know, stared at or just called out. Whereas we could just kind of blend in seamlessly in the community. And that was that was a really different feeling for me coming from Wisconsin, right? right. And and basically just the the point of this story is that literally the just the, the sheer difference in the way everything was done. I mean, there was a different concept of time. There was a different concept of family. There was a different concept of respecting, you know, who was re who earned respect and who didn't. There was a different religion. I mean, Islam was my family's religion and they they tried to convert me almost every night, but like in a great way, like I saw Islam in a totally different way than the kind of textbook version that I had read about in my history class. Yeah. But most even the way we ate dinner together communally with our, you know, we used our hands, not silverware for many of our meals. It just flew in the face of everything that I had been taught was just the correct way. And mm -hmm. it wasn't like a choice. It was like suddenly it was made clear to me that there is an entirely different way to be 
like in that mm-hmm. full encompassing understanding of what to be means, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so after that experience, I was like, I not just have to get out of Wisconsin, like I need to see the world because maybe I'll find myself, maybe mm. I'll find my people if I just get out of Wisconsin and maybe get out of the United States. Right. That was like the seed was planted. And I, so you ultimately went to Smith for college. And I, yes. I'm curious because Wisconsin and I believe Smith is in Massachusetts. Am I correct? Yes. And it's not very diverse. And That's I why like, I was like, <laughs> my, my, if you, you know, like, nothing, like I know there are people who know nothing about U.S. colleges and Smith is in, in the state of Massachusetts, which is on the East Coast. Let me give the geography lesson. It is an all women's college, I believe. Correct. Correct. Um, and it is, where is it? I, it's not, I it's know where it is. Northampton, Massachusetts. That's where it is. It's Western Mass. It's not even like. Towards Boston. And yeah. Right Okay, so <laughs> so you're like, I don't understand the diversity thing. Honestly, right. I, I mean, remember the internet was not a thing. Right. So you're going with brochures, right? The brochure. God, the brochures the were brochures, amazing. Of course, they put all the colored people all over the pictures. And you look at diversity numbers and you have to understand, I was the only Black girl in my entire graduating class in high school Mm -hmm. I was the only black girl black person on my swim team like everywhere so if there was a percentage above one I was like wow yeah that's fair (laughs) that's fair that's I mean literally like I'm my my perspective was so skewed that I looked at pretty much any place that had a diversity number above x and I'm looking at the college diversity numbers I wasn't looking at the town and the town please there was like we never know when, when you're 17 you don't think about that yes right so so smith was um i actually chose smith smith was my first choice school because i had spent a summer at a i can't believe i'm going to put this on for public consumption i went to math camp when i was in Aww. i did so poorly on my sat <laughs> PSAT, that my parents were like oh my gosh <laughs> i think i got the credit for writing my name down Same. but um <laughs> So they sent me to math camp at Mount Holyoke College, which yeah. is in the same region as Smith. And I fell in love with the area there. It was just so idyllic, you know, it was the typical New England college town area. And that's what I, I just liked the area. Then I started researching colleges and Smith seemed like the perfect place for me. And it was because um, it just was this amazing supportive environment for women to do what they wanted and I am a classic Aquarius I've got a million ideas I knew I wanted to study abroad and I wanted to be a writer but other than that and Smith you don't have to there's no requirements like you can take anything you want and kind of make up your own corset loads and stuff like that so I was like this is my school and um it was like for wackadoo wackadoo women who have a strong sense of self confident and don't need no man to tell them (laughs) you know to validate their experiences and and I got that and I met my best friends all of whom were women of color except for my one token white friend hi Kate (laughs) (laughs) but like I did have women like my friends were all women of color not very many black friends most of them were Asian but Asian from all over the world yeah um but still it was an improvement. Like I was moving, I was right. getting there. <laughs> You're it was like this is a step-by-step process, but that's 
Smith was, again, it also Smith had an amazing study abroad program and you could literally make up your own idea of where you wanted to go. You'd be like, I'm going to Nepal. I'm going to, I mean, I seriously know somebody who did this. Like, <laughs> I'm going to Nepal. I'm going to commune with the camels. I'm going to write you a paper about it and you're going to pass me. Done. <laughs> I, and I'm glad you brought that up because I, I know that one of the hallmarks of your experience at Smith was studying abroad in Spain. Yes. Right. Which I, yes. I love good foreshadowing. Right. Because <laughs> I'm like, I am sure. And and obviously being in Morocco, proximity to Spain. Right. Was it intentional on your part to go to Spain as a young woman or was it more there was an opportunity and you took it? No, it was absolutely intentional. And it was, um, you know, again, I feel like the universe, God, however you want to call it, drops breadcrumbs. But when I was in fifth grade, I chose to study Spanish literally because my sister studied French and I did not want to be compared to my sister because she was a better student than me. And so I was like, I'll do the other language. Lo and behold, same teacher. <laughs> so I, I, you know, that didn't work out because they're like, your sister is such a good student. What happened to you? Right. Um, she's so studious. I talk too much in class. Surprise. <laughs> but um. But my my Spanish teacher, once I got, I forgot, I think with my seventh grade, my Spanish teacher loved me. Um, he was Cuban, actually. Mm -hmm. And he used to lead uh, toward uh, classes. I'm sorry. He used to lead students to Spain. We do like, like that mm -hmm. spring break, 10 trips or 10 days, 10 yeah. cities. And I didn't want to do that because I was like, I want to go to school. <laughs> I want to go with these fools. <laughs> right. My my classmates did not take to I mean even in like fifth sixth seventh grade in middle school I was already like yearning for that like excitement of a foreign country like I felt I could already tell that there was going to be an opportunity for me in another country and mm -hmm. my classmates were just like eh, you know they're very wealthy parents we're going to send them and it was going to be just a vacation for them I had right. no interest but that teacher would always say to me Lori you will love Spain I just know you're going to love Spain so that seed was planted like when I was 11 years old and so, and then in high school, we did a, a um, exchange program where Spanish students came to our school and then a bunch of us went to Spain. My parents could not afford it. I really wanted to go. Mm -hmm. It was almost like a lost opportunity. That one thing, like it was like a hands in the air, like, by God, I will get to Spain. If it's not now, you know, I'll yeah. go by myself. I'll figure it out somehow. Yeah. So by the time I went, it, and my parents were very clear. They're like, you can study abroad in college. We are not, again, we're paying for this private school, like barely being able to make it, you will go to college and you will be able to study abroad in college. Mm -hmm. And so when I got to college, you know, like, like I said, my big, my, the first question I asked at any college, you know, visit was what kind of study abroad program do you have? Originally, actually, though, I loved languages and I actually started taking German when I was in, when I started Smith mm -hmm. and I continued Spanish. I was taking Spanish and German. And my original, my original plan was actually to spend a semester in Vienna and mm -hmm. a semester in Spain. And the study abroad officer or dean at the time told me that if my goal was to, you know, really practice the language, you know, to improve my languages, then one country would be better because it would take, and I knew I was going for a year. Um, and, but he was like, by the time you kind of acclimate and then have to go to another country, you, you haven't really gained the proficiency that you're looking for. Yeah. So he was like, I would suggest that you pick one country. And I chose Spain because I had more invested in terms of language learning, yeah. but I did take German when I was in Spain. I, 
I was that girl who <laughs> took German at the university in Spain, which is actually where I met my husband. So <laughs> in German class. So the German paid off is what you're saying. It did. I never thought about Just it that Just not the way. way. <laughs> not the I way. I say like one sentence to this day in German. Doesn't matter. But, yeah. Doesn't even matter. It still mm-hmm. paid off. <laughs> so studying abroad as, as, as a young adult, I, here's what I think is cool. So you lived in Morocco. Mm-hmm. I guess your brain and your experiences and probably your temperament's like, all right, I've lived in one country at least as a, as a high schooler. So you obviously two different countries, at least probably were in the mindset of, okay, there, there's some things at least now going the second time I need to be mindful of. If you think back about that time, what was sort of memorable about being a college student in Spain studying abroad for a year outside of the, although I do think meeting the future husband is probably, <laughs> is probably I actually might want to go down that road, but do you know what was memorable for you? Like what was, what was great about it or what was hard? Yeah, that's and actually I didn't meet my husband. I mean, I met him. I mean, we I was in class with him all year, but we didn't actually start talking until almost the end of my time there. But um really the most memorable thing about it, this is gonna sound crazy, was the utmost disappointment because I had built up what Spain was gonna be for me since like middle school, right? Like I just had it in my head that I was gonna be like Josephine Baker, who was thwarted from being her fabulous self because of racism. I was going to like go to Spain and just be like given a hero's welcome and just suddenly be like, (laughs) it's me. I can be my full authentic self and just be fabulous, you know? And what happened was that, you know, I don't like to use the word racist because it's not racist as Americans would describe racist. And that's not what happened to me. But in 1990, whatever year that was that I was in Spain, you know, there was no animosity towards me because I was Black. But the constant pointing, calling me Morena, which is like, it can mean somebody who's a brunette, but it can also be someone with brown skin, negrita, like people calling me Cola Cow, which is the hot chocolate brand here that has like black women on the cover. Um, the black face during the Holy Week or during Carnival or anytime somebody could dress up, that was an excuse to slap on black face. Mm-hmm. You know, it was this constant like conf- confrontation with ignorance around race. And d- there was one Asian girl who was there also who you know, she was called Toyota and like asked if she ate rice all the time. I mean, just the like, again, political correctness was the thing in the 90s in the United States that did not make it to Spain right. at all. Right. And it was just really disconcerting. And it was probably worse for me because I had such high expectations because Morocco had been so opposite in the sense that nobody like nobody cared I was black. Like they cared I was American and that was so incredible to not have to lead with, oh, you're black or whatever the, you know, whatever the thoughts or ideas around being black was. It was like for the first time I was Lori first, not the black girl. Oh, you mean Lori? It's, it was a really eye-opening and and freeing experience. And I just assumed that would be the same anywhere outside of the U.S. Mm. Again, 
I'm much older though. I understand that (laughs) racism is a global thing, but um, it was so disappointing. It was so disappointing. And really, I just say it was annoying. Like my experience, if I hadn't met my husband, I probably not would not have returned to Spain with any, like, I mean, maybe eventually, but I kind of was disappointed by the experience in that way. I did enjoy, like, I love traveling. I love meeting new people. I love trying new foods. I Mm -hmm. love seeing new places. And my program that I was on was really, really good in taking us all over to Spain. Like I saw a lot of the country. So as an experience, it was fantastic. I learned about myself. I mean, I, you know, I had my first apartment. I was very poor there. I mean, my parents could pay but they couldn't give me extra money. So, you know, I tutored. I did a lot of things, like little odd jobs here and there. I learned how to cook beans in so many ways. <laughs> like um, <laughs> our little apartment didn't have an oven, but we also had this so much more time to just kind of sit around and, you know, just started cooking a lot. So there was a lot I learned. I matured a lot. I learned about myself. And probably the most important thing that I learned, and I have to thank Spain for this, is it was in Spain that I decided that I was not going to um, be a teacher, which is what I was getting my degree in, that I was actually going to pursue my love of writing professionally. Mm-hmm. I met so many amazing travelers, mostly European, who were not obsessed with professional life like Americans were. Whenever we would meet another American when I was studying abroad, it was like, oh, what are you doing? What is your major? What are you going to use it for once you like, why are you studying Spanish? Oh, because I'm going to be a lawyer, international lawyer, or I'm going to be a social worker and I need this, or I'm going to be this, I'm going to do that. And then you'd meet Europeans and they'd be like, I'm studying Spanish because I like the way it sounds on my tongue. I just love languages. I'm like, yeah, but what are you going to do with it? And it's like, what do you mean, you crazy American? It's what I love. I love pursuing it for the joy of learning a language. I was like, you can do that? You know why I'm laughing? Because I'm currently learning Spanish. <laughs> because I want to learn Spanish. I grew up in Cameroon, so the French is there. And the Spanish, for whatever reason, is sticking real easy. And and as difficult as French was and was being in a French-speaking country, the Spanish is just like, well, you got this and we're just going <laughs> to... So yeah, I, I'm laughing because I'm there. Like I'm I'm there. And and the other thing I I wanna just highlight, you just made me really think about, you know, when you were talking about the political correctness that was coming through the US in the nineties, and I realized in the things that you said in that period, because I had been in Cameroon and they were not politically correct, I realized that a lot of things as an adult now are not jarring to me, like some of the stuff that you said, because I'd already been bathed in the (laughs) lack of like, so I wasn't surprised, but I think you just kind of opened my eyes to you're right. If someone's coming from this, like, let's say from the States or Canada or whatever, being blatantly described by skin color and or attached to a commercial product is so weird for, (laughs) for us. But in Cameroon, people did it all the time. So that when I when I did travel to Latin America, like literally was not faced because because for me, that's where my point of reference was. But wow, I, I hope that in, in the work that you do and, and the people that you talk to, that is such a key thing to prep folks for. It really is. And here's the here's the reality. 
and I'm not I'm not throwing your college under the bus. This is why diverse personnel and study abroad is hella key. Well, you want it the funny it's not funny, but <laughs> my the study abroad dean at the time, another reason he suggested I don't go to Vienna is because he's like, they're very racist there. Like that was he didn't extrapolate, he didn't go he just was like <laughs> I wouldn't go to Vienna. I was like, okay. I mean, I didn't, again, there's no internet. There's no, like, it's not, when you think about it, where we were, where we had, how we had to make our decisions. I mean, sure, you could read a global newspaper, but again, most of us weren't reading global newspapers when they're in college. So, you know, you took the advice of your, of your study abroad yeah, deans. Right. And his, his, his advice was don't go to Vienna because they're racist. And if you go to Spain, watch out because the men are all like, I'm going to try to sleep with you. So that was those parting <laughs> words. That was it. And I agree with you hundred percent that you, do, and, and, and again, this was 20, 30 years ago. Right. So I, I'm sure Smith study abroad. Yeah. No, we're not, we're, right. we're not throwing Smith under the brush, but no. here's the issue that, and this is why I had Corey Sanders on, or Saunders on in December of 2020, because black woman in study abroad, close yep. friend, yeah. I mean, there, there are men and women of color who are in international education. They are so good. And she studied, she studied in Spain, did her master's, yeah. did a dual, whatever. So she, she got it. There are people who, because of their experiences and because of their background, can coach and guide students of color so much better because there are nuances, right? There, there are things that, you know, you might get mistaken for X, Y, or Z, because you look like this, that you may not, you may not know, which has nothing to do with the fact that, you know, you're studying abroad there. It's just like, okay, you're a black woman and maybe whatever the relationship is in that country with black women, right? It's like, everyone's got their own relationship, <laughs> whatever their relationship of, especially how certain black women get there, you might get mistaken for this or that and whatever. And so even now, when you look at the data, the data is still insane in terms of who is in study abroad positions in terms of faculty and staff. It is still overwhelmingly white, right? When we still look at people who are going, it's still overwhelmingly white, female, middle class, mm-hmm. right? And and often, you know, I've been brought in to at, you know, talk to programs like, how do we diversify and how do we do this and that? And I'm like, it's actually really simple. You need more study abroad staff of color, mm-hmm. number one. And number two, you need buy-in and connections with your staff and faculty on your campus that have studied abroad because that's who those kids are going to listen to. Right. And I mean, you what? all, go- yeah, because you all good and well, but they're going to listen to Dr. Jones over here who was a black right. man studying in Vienna. <laughs> I spent the last 12 years working at Temple University and I led two groups of students to England, to London specifically, because we had a, within the School of Communications where I worked, they had a program where uh, faculty led programs to England on a regular basis. But I also was on the International Study Away Committee because of exactly what you're saying. It was really, I mean, Temple is known as the diversity university. We mm-hmm. have one of the high, the best diversity numbers, but, um, you know, over and over again, mostly because of cost, you know, the numbers are often skewed very white, mm-hmm. but even our white students at Temple weren't necessarily privileged, Mm -hmm. I mean, in terms of financially. Um, And so we were constantly trying to encourage all of our students of color to 
travel abroad. And every group that I took, I mean, again, I only took two groups, but I was often involved in the, you know, yeah. orientations and so on and so forth. But we were we were doing a pretty good job of getting students of color. And often it was often it was just a matter of providing financial aid, which we didn't have to even there's so many grant right. and um, scholarships that actually exist that people don't even realize. So it really is I looked at my role on that committee, not just because I enjoy, you know, study abroad that so on, but to be exactly what you were saying is to mm -hmm. be that face, um, to be that um, person who that people can talk to um, about study abroad, because I personally think study abroad, I mean, it did, it changed my life entirely. Um, it changed my life because it opened up that, you know, it cracked open that realization that mm. we are not limited to what the United States, how the United States defines us, which mm -hmm. is so, for, for Black people, particularly, most people of color, but actually any marginalized community in the United States, we are so boxed in, in terms of how we are allowed to define ourselves. And so study abroad from in that sense i'm like yeah maybe go to some maybe go to museum or so on but like really <laughs> it's just existing in a different space you get to realize that you can be whoever you want to be like when the rules are different it's it's like carte blanche to to define yourself and we don't get to do that so often in the united states when we don't look like Tom, Dick, and Harry. I don't know why those were the names I picked out, but like Dick and Jane. No, no, no. Jack and Jill. No, no, I don't know. <laughs> right, right, right. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So we're back on the other side of the break, and if you if you've been following along, we we've gotten to the point where where Lori talks about discovering, hey, she could be a writer and and she could do quite a few things, which we're going to talk about those things, and so. Uh, I, you know, looking at your bio, I, real, I realize you've written for a lot of different folks, <laughs> a lot of interesting things. And you were in New York. What was your life at that point? You know, you've graduated college and, and I know in there grad school happened. What was your life at that point in New York? Were you, was it an intentional move? Was it because of a relationship? Did you just want to be in New York? What was going on? Actually, it's funny because um, despite the fact that I had now lived in Morocco, I had lived in Spain. I was petrified to go to New York City, but I still secretly wanted to be an actress and I wanted to be a writer. So New York was where I decided made the most sense. Plus, all my friends from college had moved to New York by this point. I did not get a job in journalism. I was offered a few, but I 
could not afford to live. I, I refused to live the way that I would have had to making like, you know, subsistence wages. So I took a job in PR, worked for mm-hmm. NPR for a couple of years, and then went to went back to school and got a degree in journalism. And my first job out of grad school was at Vibe magazine when Vibe yeah. was amazing. Still a big yeah. fat print pop culture, hip hop magazine. Right. Um, Coming from Wisconsin, from my white existence, I was like, look, if you hire me, I'm going to tell you right now, I know nothing about hip hop, nothing, but I can do (laughs) everything else. The pop culture, the political politics, I will do it all. Just, just understand. I am, I was raised by wolves. Okay. (laughs) I do not have the requisite knowledge about music. Um, And that was actually, I felt like another like study abroad experience because for the first time in my entire life, I was surrounded by black people. Um, Mm. And you have to understand again, growing up in Wisconsin, I never, ever, ever had a black teacher. Not once. Mm -hmm. I never Mm -hmm. had a black doctor. I did not see black people in charge of anything, like anything. And so at Vibe, you know, the boss is black. Like everybody in the office is black. The writers that I looked up to were black. It was incredible to me. And the diversity of blackness was also like so affirming. It was like, oh, these black people are all vegans. This was before veganism was cool. You know, (laughs) these black people are just really into fashion. and, And these black people are, you know, like me, they secretly like Celine Dion, you know, whatever it was. And plus I was living in Brooklyn. Like this was my quote unquote coming home, coming home to myself experience. So I worked at Vibe. I ended up working at Entertainment Weekly. I was kind of a entertainment journalist and mm-hmm. um, very much enjoying myself in my twenties and live in the live in La Vida Loca, literally wrote a story about Ricky Martin. <laughs> wrote that story. Um and- was this for from a time frame, because the music geek in me is like geeking out. Is this like late nineties, two thousand? Like, what's it? Oh my gosh, that is such peak vibe. Like, I'm just saying, this is someone who I had come back to the states for college in ninety seven, and so, oh my gosh, like I remember the covers. I remember Biggie and Tupac being on the cover. Like, I remember all these covers. And once again, this is very niche cultural for some of you who are listening, but doesn't matter for those of you if you know, you know. That was such an amazing time. And I can, and even when you're talking about cultures though, like black people in New York, black people in the New York area in the arts, right? It was, uh, I mean, for any, I mean, you could be black from Mississippi. That ain't your black, you know what I'm saying? Like, so you be, right. That must have been such a shift for you. It was. And it was so wonderful because, I mean, honestly, Again, coming from where I came from and how I grew up, I never felt like I belonged in a Black community. Mm. And and this is kind of how my life work began is because it took me so long to be like, you know, my mid-20s, late 20s to realize that my Black may not look like yours, but it's still Black. Right. And that the right. Black experience cannot be defined with we came from down south and we moved up north. Martin Luther King Jr., the end. You know, like that's not right. everybody's experience. And everybody right. doesn't listen to the same music and everybody doesn't wear their hair the same way. And everybody doesn't eat the same thing. You know, sugar on your grits or salt on your grits. It's a polemic. You know, it's a debate. <laughs> um, so that's be- that's when the seed for me began of 
really kind of paying attention to the diversity of the Black experience and saying, it's my job to write about the Black experience that doesn't get written about, right? It's to write Mm. about that Black kid who is, um, you know, a chef and also a science expert or something, you know, or, Mm -hmm. you know, whatever it is. Um, I think the biggest thing that, that defined my kind of rebellion in this way is being told that I acted white because I like to read and because I spoke the way I spoke as if black people weren't smart readers interested in education. That made me so mad, so mad. And the thing that just kills me is that my own kids, you know, you're not black enough or you're not really black. I'm like, it's freaking 30 years later and we're still <laughs> right. saying the same stupidity about what, right. you know, black people don't swim. Black people don't camp, you know? Okay. Really? First of all, first of all, first of all, I will always rail against this black people don't swim. Most of us live in countries that are coastal and by water. I just want to say there's a whole region called the Caribbean there's a whole continent with a lot of coastline. I just want some some reflection on this. <laughs> <laughs> That's all that I'm gonna say. Thank about. you. Just, I just want you to. I just want you to just think about the Jamaicans and the Trinis, right, and the Dominicans and the Haitians, and I just I just want you to marinate <laughs> in that, and then let's come back to if black people don't swim here. Mm-hmm. There's a history. Right. There's so much attached to it. So much. So, yeah. So that's my, um, that's what I was doing in New York. I loved, I loved New York because my, my New York experience was deeply rooted and only and centered in Brooklyn, um, in terms of where I lived. And I actually had both of my, I have three children, but I had my, my boys were born in New York and I loved being a new mom in Brooklyn. It was so much community focused. Um, and then I moved to Philadelphia when the, my boys were a little bit older because we could not figure out how to raise our growing boys in a one bedroom apartment that we had converted into a two bedroom apartment because it's right. New York. And right. when I moved to New York, we, I, I continued to freelance write and I actually had written my first book, Hair Story, Untangling the Roots of Black Hair in America by this time. So I was freelance writing, writing another book and ended up working in academia kind of part-time as an adjunct with then that eventually turned into a full-time position in the journalism department at Temple University. So I've continued to write and I started writing fiction and, you know, dabbled in a lot of different things, but was anchored now with a job in academia, again, teaching journalism, magazine writing, um, and even some creative writing classes as well. I (laughs) leave it to me to figure out how to teach uh, fiction in a journalism department, which right. <laughs> fake news. No, it was a different thing altogether. <laughs> no, right. But um, that's what I was doing for the last pretty much. Yeah. Up until the, until I moved to Spain. So your, your husband is Spanish. Correct. Spaniard. Mm-hmm. Where in Spain is he from? He's from a small fishing town in this, in this uh, Southwest in the region of Cadiz. Okay. And at what point did he come over to the U.S. or at what point were you guys like, we're going to do this thing together? Um, So we met in during my junior year of college and we kind of went back and forth uh, for a couple of years where he would come visit me in the States. I would go visit him in Spain. He came to the U.S. 
in like two years after I had moved to New York. Um, and he, after he graduated from college, they, Spain has a, they, at, the, at the time it was a five-year bachelor's degree. That's the how long. So uh, he's old, he's a year older than me, but he was technically, he had one more year of college to go. Anyway, so he came in like the mid to late nineties and we, it took us seven years basically to decide to get married and we get married and you know, we've been together ever since. So he was in New York. So, so for him, New York was his own kind of mm-hmm. exciting experience. You know, that was, again, he's from this small town in the South of Spain coming to New York city was like frightening for him and his family. all thought he was crazy. Cause you know, his siblings all live within a five mile radius of their parents, you know, that kind of thing. I mean, not five miles, but well, one but, does, yeah. but, but it was yeah. very unusual for him to pick up and move not only like away from the, main area where his parents, the city where his parents are, but out of the country, he actually majored in English and it always thought he would go to England, you know, right. for a little while. Um, but, you know, he met me and was like, oh, I'll go to the United States. And I, it, originally, I don't think he thought this was going to be a lifetime decision. It was just like, <laughs> why not? I know this nice girl. And um, yeah, he got stuck. <laughs> And, and the reason I'm 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 very intrigued is that often when we have people on this show, it is often, you know, a partner moves to outside of. So if let's say if they're American, right, they are moving to somewhere else. They're getting into that culture X, Y and Z. That obviously happened with your husband. And and what I think is really fascinating, especially when I look at a lot of your work how much of a, you really do. And I, I think I'm going to misquote this, but talk about really writing about the intersection of sort of this race and this life that we live and whatnot. And, and I'm very intrigued on what it was like and what it's been like having a multicultural family, right? Having a partner outside of the culture, you, let's say greater culture you grew up in and how you've been able to navigate. Because one of the things I find, especially when I have family or, or folks on and they talk about their relationships especially people raising kids is how much I realize how few books <laughs> there are that focus just even with kids, like what it means to be in a multicultural family, what it means to be, you know, biracial, multiracial, but what has been sort of your nuanced story doing it in the States. And then it seems like now you're doing it flipped because now you're in his home, his home country. Right. Um, well, again, as somebody who has like deeply thought about what does it mean to be black and how Blackness is not monolithic, I was very conscious about making sure that my children were both Black and Spanish. Mm. It took me, you know, ironically, I stumbled into the like mixed race community. uh, And I say stumbled into because I was invited to an event before, I think I was maybe pregnant or had just given birth to my first son, but I was invited to an event for like mixed race families to talk about hair because of my first book to to give a talk on the, you know, importance of black hair. And so I was like, this is a whole community, this mixed race families. And I think it was mixed race as well as like transracially adopted families. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I realized at that point that my children were not just black. Like in my, I, I had always wanted to be a mother. I had two things. I wanted to be a mother and a writer. And so I was just like ready to raise my black children. And then right. after recognizing that, you know, listening to people who were of mixed race, talk about what that meant 
and that it was something distinct from being monoracial, I was like, okay, I have to be very intentional about raising my children so that, and, and that's where I heard, we, you know, that I'm not half this and half that. I am and, I am this and that. And so from, from that moment on, I realized that it was my job as a mother of multiracial children to instill in them a confidence around having a Black and Spanish identity, which is actually mm. quite on, is really a, a freeing thought because I think when you look at your, if you look at your children as half of something, you're kind of trying to figure out like how much of this and how much of that do we do? And do we spend, if it's, and it's like, whatever you have is good, you know, just keep giving all you can of all the things. And you don't have to be like, well, now we're going to do the black thing. And now we're going to do the Spanish thing. It's just is. So I poured into them everything I could about, you know, blackness and being proud of their culture and heritage as a black American. And my Mm -hmm. husband, you know, same thing, but to a lesser degree, because he's not in his country, you know, it's more of a challenge for him. You know, he can't just, (laughs) let's go to the festival, you know, let's do the thing. But one thing that he was very adamant about was, you know, he only spoke to our children in Spanish. Like they didn't know he spoke English. <laughs> no, we speak together in English. They, my <laughs> sons were like shocked at like age six or seven. They're like, Poppy, you speak English? <laughs> Not to you. <laughs> <laughs> but he has literally Sorry. never spoken to them in English. And like food wise, you know, he's like, I don't, when I take the kids to Spain, I don't want them to be like, can I have chicken nuggets? You know, like, right. do not embarrass me here. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Cause you know, food is so important. And right. my kids eat green olives and like snails. And I mean, from like yeah. day one and like, like, exactly as he said, you know, when we go to his parents' house, you know, we don't go out. Like it's really about mom cooking and his mother cooks like amazing food and it's not any really strange or different, but you know, it's flavor different. There's some things like, like, the shrimp have their heads on them, right? They're not sanitized with no beady little <laughs> eyes, right? right. Um, you know, things like that. They're not like, what is that? You know what I mean? Right. So, so, so basically that has been our approach is just and, right? To very much uh, proudly and as much as possible just to pour into them a sense of blackness and Spanishness. Spanishness is not a word, but- <laughs> Um, right. <laughs> but I think just by having the language that anchors them into this other culture um, and having the skin and the hair that they do and they're very loud black mama, you know, they they have that sense as well. I <laughs> my son, my middle son, both of my sons, actually, when I'll say something like, you know, are you sure you know how to do this? They'll be like, I am a proud black woman and I don't need no man. You know, I'm like, okay, oh my great, great, great. We're good. We're good. You know, uh, you taught me, you raised me to be a proud black woman and I don't need no man. So mom, I'm good. You know, so my six foot two inch boys are saying that to me, you know, so. so normally, yeah. I was going to say, normally when I hear this conversation in terms of anchoring, it's, it's families are in a different country and they, and they, and, but the thing is they're describing exactly what you're saying, right? Is that we want to make sure that our children are anchored to their cultures. They are anchored, anchored to their traditions, that they have a good idea that they aren't a fish out of water. It is, this is probably the first time. And I have talked to people all the time. I've actually heard someone talk about the same concept, but doing it 
in an American <laughs> context, right? And I get it because you do have a mixed racial, you know, multiracial fa- like it's, but I, it, my brain, I don't know why my brain just sort of shifted and went, I've never actually heard someone actually articulate doing it in the US. And I think because for me, where, I, where I'm fascinated is that your kids certainly, they have a Black parent. <laughs> and being in the US, we know how much race overlays everything. And I, I'm curious, and I don't know if maybe you and your husband have had these discussions, but at some point, maybe even early on, did you find yourself having conversations about sort of these are the racial nuances in the U.S.? These are the things that sort of happen. And and what did that, at least as much as you can interpret, did it look like for him? Because there are things that we see as normal, not necessarily right, but normal because we're familiar. But these lenses look different if you're coming from a different place. Did you ever have those conversations with him about under these ideas? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I have to say first that like some people might not think that in the United States, you have to give your children, you know, your, the American culture, but I am very clear that black American culture is not American culture. And, you know, like I was saying earlier that I had an idyllic childhood in a lot of ways, but the one thing my parents did not give me was a sense of pride around my blackness. And I think that was a generational thing you know, they were trying to survive. They're trying to push me to survive. I mean, to do all that I can. Not to mention, I had this freakishly large black family. It's like, what do I need to teach you? Well, they didn't teach me, you know, how to to feel a sense of pride about that, though. It was just kind of a foregone conclusion. And I know nobody saw my, sat my parents down and said, be proud of your blackness. Again, it was like, Run from the clan, you know. It wasn't survival. So it's like survival, know. and and it is a little bit of a luxury if you also are able to get that when people are trying to make it. Right. I got you exactly. So so when I say I raise my children to be black and Spanish, it is so they understand. You know, again, their history, the pride, the traditions. You know, they understand exactly why we are eating black eyed peas on New Year's Eve. I mean, on New Year's Day, right? They understand mm-hmm. these things from a sense of cultural pride, not just, you know, by the way. As far as my husband was concerned, I think the fact that he is from Spain is a little bit different than if he were from like Germany or Sweden, where that kind of white privilege is assumed and accepted, whereas Spain kind of had. To in a certain way, they had to kind of fight for their ability to say they are white. You know, they understand, and especially also because he's from the south of Spain, which just like almost everywhere else in the world, the southern hemisphere of Spain is less developed than the northern. I mean, the southern part of Spain is less developed yeah. than the north. And oftentimes, in fact, when I was studying in my junior year abroad, people told me, well, don't try to learn Spanish from a southern Spaniard because they don't speak properly. You know, and that rubs him so badly. He hates that. But um, there is definitely a sense of like the South. They're just not as sophisticated as we are up in the North. So so to explain, I mean, again, and he's not stupid and he's very aware and being with a black person like he he's he's it wasn't like starting from blank. That being said, he is not a black person. He is not American. And. He, you know, (laughs) the reason I love my husband, though, is because he read the autobiography of Malcolm X on his own and (laughs) like for his own pleasure. And then like Malcolm X decided he was going to memorize the the dictionary just like Malcolm X did in jail. Okay. Um, I mean, that's a special kind of dude. Yeah. So things like that. I'm like, 
I love you. Just, that's just, <laughs> just, I just, that's so cool. But you read and you read black literature. What? Love it. So that being said, I'm just going to give you one quick example. We were looking for our first apartment together once we were getting engaged. And we, I, I, I think I was making the phone calls, you know, setting up appointments to see house. Um, again, uh, I have this very white girl named Lori, you know, and I sound like this on the phone, got a, um appointment to see this apartment in the very nice neighborhood. And when we got to the office of the, the real estate office, it was like a glass door and they wouldn't open the door for me. I was like, I'm here to pick up the key because they were literally like, the apartment is yours. I had a really great job, all the things. I was literally there to pick up the key and just do a walkthrough before we signed the contracts. They would not open the door for me. My husband then came. I mean, he was my fiance at the time, but he came up behind when they saw him, they opened the door and suddenly the apartment was rented. And I honestly don't really, I barely remember this. Like to me, this was terrible, but like, okay, I'm not shocked. I'm a black woman in America. To this day, he will tell me that was the worst experience he'd ever had in his life. He was so mad. He could not believe that somebody could treat me like that. I was like, oh, I, that's touching. <laughs> Sorry. Yes, yes, all of it. But, but he, also like, he was right. so, it was like for him, that was the blatant, he, you could not deny what he had just seen. And he, again, it, it, he talks, if you ask him today, like, what's the worst thing, you know, and he'll be like, that time. And I'm like, they were racist against my, my fiance. Yes. Um, <laughs> and I saw it. Yes. <laughs> and he, when he tells that story, he's so impassioned and he's so indignant and he's just like, can you believe this? And um, yes, you're like, yes, I can. I, like, <laughs> I can't even remember this. After that, yeah, 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 yeah. When you mentioned, yeah, yeah, I remember that. But, oh, God. <laughs> so, so he is, Again, I don't, and, and I think particularly when um, tr when Trump was elected, these things came up even more. I mean, it was so, there were, I was so mad, angry, all these things. And he was mad, angry, and all these things too, but it's just not the same. And right. we did have some heated arguments about race in ways that we hadn't. You know, I think that presidency made us confront some things that up until then, uh, I think I used the word white privilege one too many times before he was like, you got to stop saying that. I'm like, no, but it's true. You know, like you don't even know, you know? Um, right. But for, for, for couples where you have a person of color and a white person, I think that there has to be these very honest dis discussions because love is not enough. It's a cliche, but it is not enough. And yeah. the white part, and I've done podcast episodes about this. I've written about this the white person has to acknowledge that they cannot be right about these things, that there are times when you just have to say, especially when there are children involved and you're not going to be able to necessarily help your children of color get through whatever they're getting through. You might not have the answers and you cannot tell your spouse of color. Uh, I, I understand or I, I know what you're talking about. You might have to say, I cannot understand I, but I'm here for you. And that's the best you can do. To me, that is the part about mm, interracial relationships that is truly requires a humbling of self because we cannot put ourselves, we cannot be that other culture as much as we want to. And I think that that's where there's tremendous failure 
And we see that, I think, in some celebrity couplings where you're like, it comes to a point where you're like, I know what happened there. The, the, the cultural differences were never really addressed. And something causes that to happen, you know, the birth of a child, the death of a child, the, you know, some political things in this, in the environment and society, you need to have those conversations and you need, it's not just the conversation, but you need to come to some sort of agreement as to how you're going to address those things when they come up, because they will come up. And it may be 10 years before they come up. So you're, you're gliding along thinking everything is fine. And then yeah. you're forced to confront it. And um, that's, that, you know, that's when you test the real bonds of your relationship, I think. So I'm, I'm like reflecting on what you've said and I'm, I'm thinking how much truth there is into that <laughs> when especially talking to folks who are in cross-cultural relationships and who say, and I, I mean, and even there, there's an episode that would have aired by the time, you know, people hear this with Dr. Nafisa Allen, love her. Seriously, you should listen to that episode. She's a U.S. diplomat amazing young woman married to a man who's Mozambican. And we were break, she was breaking it down in our conversation. Yeah, they both black, but the cultural expectations are night and day from like Southern, you know, East Africa versus someone who grew up in Jersey. (laughs) And uh, you're right. Like the stuff that you say, and then you add the layer, of course, with skin color. And the nuances there. And so I guess then the question for me is two parts. When did you make the decision to move to Spain? Because now, now, now we flipped, right? And what has been your experiences? And I know you are, you're almost a year in. So you're not, I mean, you're a newbie, but are you really though? I'm a newbie. I'm a total newbie. <laughs> like, it's like, total whatever. Newbie. It's not been, it's, I mean, we're coming on summer. So you've almost, but what, what, what has it been now? I think for you and also your husband to, in a way, repatriate. Yeah. Well, really quickly, as I alluded to before, I mentioned that I had taken students to um, England as part of my job at Temple University. And as I also alluded to even prior to that, I've always thought of myself as being a global citizen. Like after Morocco, I just assumed that I would live all over the world, that I would find my my home outside of the United States. But I didn't. I lived a very normal life in terms of, you know, followed the career path, made, you know, got on the tenure track in academia, made tenure, did all the things, checked all the boxes, had my kids. When I started taking the students to London, that desire to travel and to be a global citizen was rekindled big time. And my husband, again, who was technically living abroad all these years, um, he was feeling the itch to go home. 
And so we first started thinking, well, maybe we should come to England because it'd be like a halfway point for both of us, meaning not halfway, but closer to Spain. And I speaking, you know, I can speak English. It's not that much of a difference, so to speak. But I couldn't find work in England. I was trying to look for jobs in academia and I just it did not work. And it was only a half-hearted attempt because really the weather, <laughs> we were just like, um, and then it was, we spent a summer in Spain. It was the first time I'd been back for like a long period. Um, and we spent a summer, we rented an apartment instead of just visiting, staying with his parents. And it was such a wonderful experience. We thought maybe we could move to Spain. Like this was something I had rejected for so long because of what I said before about my experience living in Spain, being a black person. I just felt like I can't raise my children in this environment. You know, there's just, there's just too much ignorance, could not do it. I wouldn't be happy. But by 2019, I held a totally different experience. And again, Spain has changed. I had changed um, and I was ready, but not fully committed, not ready to fully commit. And so I actually got in a sabbatical for the year 2020. Um, I was going to take a year and we actually, you know, my husband got a leave from his job we got school for the, the, the kids' schools. We're holding their, I mean, was, they go to public school, but still hold their place. Um, and then, you know, the pandemic right. happened. So um, we were really upset and we were still going to try. And no, no, no. It, and and my, my school gave me the, the chance to say they would let me go anyway, but they were really like, but you shouldn't. So the, the sabbatical was canceled. And between what I call Black Lives Matter 2.0, the pandemic, it was brought to, to, you know, the forefront of everybody's mind that tomorrow is not promised that simple. So we just decided, I said, what if we stopped just like tippy toeing to this idea and we just went for it and just sold all our stuff and moved to Spain. And of course my husband was like a hundred percent on board because again, he's very close with his family, but you know, not seeing them, but once every two years, because we, we're stupid and had three kids. Um, it was too costly. Like we thought we would have this life where we could just pop over to Spain whenever, but that just did not happen. So all that to say, he was like, tell me when let's go. Um, the fact that there was a pandemic did give us pause, but not, it didn't take us too long to come to the realization that we could get COVID in the States or we could get COVID in Spain. <laughs> they both got doctors. They both got like, really what was the difference and for me that was my biggest hang up was like i don't want to die well i could die anywhere but let right? me at least die so, somewhere where it's pretty and warm that's me exactly. <laughs> anyway yes you were saying i mean and this is terrible but like i had a bunch of friends in spain who got covid and they were like the treatment was wonderful the medical system is fantastic so i was like okay like my biggest fear was i'll get covid but according to these people <laughs> oh god they, they got it taken care of. Okay. So for me, the move to Spain was was really twofold. One, I, again, have always wanted to live abroad, have this global life, travel and see the world. And I was like, run it up on 50. And I was like, if I don't do this now, I'm going to just keep my nice cushy job in academia, wait till retirement, and then like have to go on a bus tour of, you know, <laughs> Spain. And that's not what I want to do. Right. And... That was one thing. The other thing was that going back to the kids, 
I felt responsible, even though I'm not their Spanish parent, I felt responsible for giving them the experience of living, not just visiting, but living in their other culture so that they didn't grow up and then throw it in my face that I didn't show them this, you know, and they weren't asking. They were not like, mommy, please take us to Spain. Not at all. But But I can project (laughs) 10 years in advance and, you know, have them look at us. Because we see those kids now uh, who as adults are like, my family's been doing that. My dad never took me. And I'm like, okay, like people who are angry. (laughs) Exactly. 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 And so I was like, you know what? And if they hate me, like if they hate the experience, I don't even care. It's like, I I felt like it's my responsibility. And my husband, of course, was uh, like, he agreed on all those different things. And then the third thing really quickly was that I also wanted to get out of academia and and spend my time doing what I love, which is writing. This 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 podcast is going and really, it's like we're not doing foreshadowing, right? Um so Spain has universal health care. Their college costs are not astronomical. So I knew that I could, if I could do my freelance work, which I had been doing, um, I didn't have to cheat my children out of college education or health care <laughs> should they right, need it, right. you know? So that's what made us decide. And the 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 pandemic actually pushed us in the sense like now or never, And also the pandemic, like tiny little pro tip, because we were all quarantining, we weren't spending any money. So we were able to save, you know, no commuting fees. But my husband worked in New Jersey. So like driving every day to New Jersey, we had to buy a second car. Girl, we sold that car. We're like, take that money, you know, put it in the Spain fund. Um, so, So that was it. It was really COVID that made us say, like, what are we waiting for? Do it now or forever hold your peace. And that's what we did. How old are your kids? So I have a 20-year-old, a 17-year-old, and a 10-year-old. The 20-year-old did not come with us. He's still in the States. Um, and the seven, so the 17-year-old was 16 when we got here. The 10-year-old is 9-year-old we got here. Um, and they're both in Spanish public schools. And my daughter is in fifth grade and my son is in, we actually have my son repeat 11th grade for two reasons. One, because of the pandemic, he spent real 11th grade in his bedroom on a computer screen. Apparently we just found out eating a lot of candy. (laughs) Um, We're like, why is he getting so chubby? (laughs) I was like, mom, I didn't want to tell you guys, but remember that those rappers you found? I mean, it was was a pandemic. I, whatever. I was like, I, no, no, sh- it's okay, baby. <laughs> Just wanted to know you what you see my candy drawer. <laughs> yeah. But so one, he, I mean, he did what he needed to do. I'm very proud of my kids for managing the yeah. pandemic, but we wanted to give him a year to catch up because he speaks Spanish, but he doesn't speak academic Spanish. Right. He doesn't right. have that level of writing and reading. So this year is kind of a catch up year for him. And also I assumed he would go to college in Germany or the Netherlands, you know, where he could get a, a do college in English. And I didn't want him to move in a year and then go to college in another country. I was like, that's, that's too lot. much. Yeah. All at once. So yeah, so that's, that's been our experience. And it's not been fully realized in the sense that the pandemic has kept a lot of things on lockdown, not lockdown, right. but limited. So I do still feel like I just got here because things are kind of just now sort opening of opening up, up yeah. and 
here, here, here is the the one positive I will say of this ridiculous pandemic we've gone through is the amount of people that had to become very reflective about their lives. Yes, and a yes. lot of people made decisions that they would have never made prior. So, because I work in this, I I am in academia or been in academia for a while. Career, all of the stuff intersects for me. The number of people who just decided. I am going to change the way I work because I've seen an alternative or I can't go back to what it was before because it was killing me. And the number of people that I, I had, you know, someone like I mentored, I mentioned Dr. Sheree Watkins to you, who was in an earlier episode from moved from Winston-Salem with her husband to St. Martin in the middle of the pandemic, had another person move to the Cayman Islands because of work through the pandemic. On our website, we had a man who retired, moved to Italy in the middle of the pandemic. Just folks saying, you know what? I, I And I think we were joking. You can die anywhere. Death don't care which, where you're at, <laughs> right? But people who just said, let me live this life though while I can. And so as funny as it may sound, I think it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I agree a hundred percent. And I was just, as you're saying that, I'm like, someone needs to write a book. The pandemic made me do it. You, you know, you like, can write the book, a uh, <laughs> writer who likes to write about cross cultural black. Yeah. Do you need subjects? Yeah. I can give you like 10 people. <laughs> well, I, like, I mean, maybe we should like, do a book together. <laughs> Published it by the black channel. You yes. know what? I say this. We go talk off the air because I do think, I think it would be utterly hilarious, but. You know, it's like, <laughs> who was it that was telling me they were living their own version of eat, pray, love, but it wasn't the white woman version. It was, <laughs> it was, it was like, yeah, I'm doing this, but it ain't, it don't look like that. I, I think that mm-hmm. the pandemic, if there's one blessing out of what has been horrible for a lot of people, it's made many of us who are fortunate and able to reevaluate and make shifts in our lives. Absolutely. I mean, and we know that it's usually trauma or, I mean, you know, I listen to a lot of travel podcasts, like that's literally how I fortified myself. And, you know, when things got hard, I would just be listening to all these people who had done this already so that I didn't lose my, my, um, moxie, if you will, like I was going to do it, but I listened to so many podcasts and heard, um, I heard women, mostly women, you know, talk about, well, my mom died. And so I just realized, you know, or my marriage was over or, you know, some sort of trauma that pushed them to reevaluate their lives. And again, I hate to act like the pandemic was a good thing because it was not a good thing at all, but it is usually a life and death experience that causes us or gives us the opportunity to look at our own lives and decide what's worth fighting for, what's worth living for, what's worth um, trying before our, you know, we all know that we're going to die. Like we all know that our time here is limited. Um, but sometimes we have to be confronted with that to make it really real. You've just listened to an episode of the global chatter, which is hosted by me, Amanda Bates. It is edited by Stephanie Ficcio. Don't forget to subscribe to the global chatter on your favorite podcast platform. You can also follow us on Instagram at the global chatter or stop by Twitter and find us at global chat pod. If you have a question, want to subscribe to the newsletter or are interested in sponsoring, visit 
theglobalchatter.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.